Welcome to another episode of Comedy Wham Presents, and welcome to the 2021 Summer Vacation Series. We're getting to know comics from around the world who performed on our Isolation Comedy Online show in 2020. I'm your host, Valerie, and sometime co-host, Ms. Purrington, will join us if she damned well pleases. ComedyWham.com is your place to go for features about all Austin comedy and those beyond. You can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at ComedyWham or on our Comedy Wham Facebook page. In addition to podcasts, Comedy Wham brings you articles, album reviews, live shows, and an events page for live shows in Austin and Houston. If you're a comic in those cities and want your show featured on the calendar, go to the events page and click submit a show to complete the short survey. Now let's get back to our podcast. Launched in 2016, the podcast project brings you funny people and their stories. As a fan, I like to delve into a comic's background and motivations, and we usually take a detour along the way. Consider the interview a way for you to get to know the folks that make the Austin, check that, global comedy scene the best. If you like this podcast, please rate and review us. Today, we are headed to Sacramento, California. We're speaking with someone who got a start as a punk ska kid and then graduated, of all things, to stand-up comedy. And among his comedy credits are opening for Norm MacDonald, Robin Williams, and Doug Stanhope. He headlined the very first China International Comedy Festival in Shanghai. He's got an amazing eight comedy, eight comedy albums available for you to listen to with amazing titles like Bad Comedy for Bad People, Elf Orgy, Atheist Christmas, Cats Made of Rabbits, and his latest, Not For Rehire. He's the author of the book, Punching Nazis and Other Good Ideas, a book that the Washington Post called Hilarious, a Demented Masterpiece. He's got an eponymous podcast, which I tried to pronounce and say uh, before we hit record, and I, uh, it is a tongue twister, even though it's just his name. And he is one of our favorite comics of our 2020 Isolation Comedy online show, though I do have to admit that sometimes his daughter did steal the show. And now Comedy Wham presents our guest, Keith Lowell Jensen. Hi. Hello. <laughs> That's a pretty impressive uh, list of accomplishments. It's always nice hearing someone else. You know, you feel like you haven't done anything. And yeah. Someone else reads something like that. You're like, oh, I did a few things. All you, right. That's you, nice. You did a lot of things. I had to scale this down. And, and I print all of all of this stuff and I'm like I had to cut some of my uh, template uh, to to fit everything in so you've done quite a lot um, well Keith it's great to have you here uh, on the podcast I'd like to start with a formal icebreaker question all right one word to describe your past hmm Oh, wow. One word. I mean, I'm old. That's a lot of past <laughs> to describe in one word. Um, to describe my past. Well, um, varied. I'll take it because I think that's very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you are in Sacramento, California today. Is that where you have always been? Were you raised there? No, I grew up in uh, Corona, California, which is down in Riverside County, not too far from Los Angeles. Okay. Um, I grew up there until I was 14. And then my parents moved with me and my little brother up to Roseville, California, which is a suburb of Sacramento. Okay. leaving behind my three older brothers so it was a really big change the family kind of split in half the older brothers went out on their own and yeah uh and i moved to what was i mean i it, i felt like i had moved to andy griffith's mayberry <laughs> roseville just seemed like such a little hick town i literally walked down main street to find you know the little market um but luckily they had video games that was like the ah. one saving i was like video games within walking distance okay i can live here yeah that's um, like but it a, was a really big change 
that's an, as essential as milk for a teenage boy is, is access to video games. <laughs> and it was like when Atari had become outdated and oh. Nintendo Entertainment System hadn't hit yet. So uh-huh. it was that period where video games at home weren't really a thing. So yeah, yeah you, you really needed somewhere to go plunk your quarters in. Yeah. So uh, a family of five boys, is that, did I catch five boys oh the probabilities (laughs) i'm probably the most hyperactive of the bunch but i have no doubt that all five of us would qualify as adhd (laughs) so that added a twist one of the things that i like to to learn is like was was comedy a part of your life growing up and it's not necessarily did you watch comedy but was it just part of your life and when i think of a large family i automatically assume there has to be hysterics and comedy just the inherent nature of five boys yeah it's funny when you when you have so many siblings everyone has to kind of find their role and mine definitely wasn't you know the funny one Um, I was the artistic one I was the one that had the oil paints and wrote poetry and uh, my brothers got mad because I could get away with putting nudes on my wall and they couldn't (laughs) Because their nudes, you know, came out of Playboy and uh-huh. my nudes were artistic. They were, I mean, basically the same thing for the same purpose, but mine uh-huh. were in black and white. <laughs> I remember my mom explaining to them, what keeps our art? <laughs> I'm behind them going like, ah. Um, but yeah, I, I think my brothers were surprised when I went into comedy because I was not. I actually, when I was really young, hated to be laughed at. Uh, you know, uh, if I walked into a wall or something, you know, and it was really the difference between laughing at or laughing with. I didn't mind if you laughed at a joke I made, but yeah. um, I was very sensitive about feeling like I was being laughed at. So, uh, yeah, that's that, that's a, such a funny thing to hear the the whole notion that you know, for you, you got away with having the nudes on on the walls because you right. painted them. That to me, that captures a lot of your essence, like you just the the you know you kind of subvert the system in a very <laughs> sly way not you know in your face although i'm sure, i mean that's i guess that's a play on words so you you wanted the nudes in your face probably yes. as a teen boy but uh <laughs> the the whole notion of a, a, a redirect is right. uh, great because i i'm thinking about your book and I was I was watching um, Not for Rehire this morning, and that was you know kind of the the subtle art that you you have is it's just that that turn that slow turn that subversive thing that that you do. You use um, the word slow, and it's my comedy does. I take my time, and I. I yeah worry about that although I Hmm. I mean you just got to be true to yourself and do what you're doing but we are in an age of short bits of Twitter and TikTok and and I do my best on those things as well and I've really worked hard on learning to do one-liners and learning to do short things but really I'm a slow burn kind of guy I'm you know even uh when people tell me they're going to watch not for rehire, I'm like, please give it at least 10 minutes. Like I don't jump right in. I slowly Uh set it up. And And years of like telling myself I wasn't going to do that with every special. I'm like, I'm going to jump right into jokes this time, but it's just, uh, I I like to set things up towards a big finale. Yeah. And, and uh, with eight albums under your belt, you know, you've, you've figured out who you are, it seems. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's go back and rewind uh, back to um, not necessarily the childhood, but how y- you were very big into punk and ska music, and you were a musician first. Is that? But you weren't. Uh, I, I I was reading an article that said you know you one of your bandmates uh, left the band to be a dad. And you were trying to figure out, well, what do I do now? And you didn't feel like you qualified for any, any of the other band positions. So right. you just, just, your default was to go to stand up. Yeah, I don't really play an instrument. I can, I can, you know, find my way around a harmonica and I know a couple of chords on the guitar, but I've never been good at playing them. The band, I, I found someone who 
a, a really talented guitarist, Scott Berenger, who was willing to let me kind of sing my lyrics to him off key and somehow he would find what I was trying to do in them oh. and help me come up with music for him or he would write music and I would take it home and listen to it and then just see what I started singing. Okay. And I, it seemed unlikely that I would find a person that patient again <laughs> to work with a songwriter who didn't play music. Although I guess it's, it's fairly common, but it's like, I wanted to do more than just write the lyrics. Oftentimes I wrote the lyrics and I had a melody in mind and you know, there's the, the Beavis and Butthead. I don't know if you ever saw it, but in their, in their oh, book, yeah. it's like, the music to popular songs, but they've written it out, you know, D-A space, D-A space, da, 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 da. <laughs> and that's literally how I wrote music. I was like, now right here, go beat it, de 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 you know, and I found someone patient enough to go, okay, let me see if I can figure out what the heck that's supposed to be. Um, you know, and I'm a little tone deaf, so it wasn't even good beatly, beatly, beatly. Um, and then the other thing was just how much work we put into it. We really promoted the band. We got to where we were gigging. We were, you know, it was a lot of work. And then to have it gone overnight because of someone else yeah. left me feeling a little bit powerless. And comedy was something where I could, again, be putting my words out there, be expressing myself in the way that I wanted to and getting the attention that I wanted. For some reason, as a society, we're not keen on saying I love attention but I do and I think it's good if you find positive ways to get it and yeah. um, so that was a common thread I I liked the attention I got in a band I liked being able to put my words out there and comedy was a way to do that that didn't depend on other people um, and even after I started comedy I'm reading all these comedian biographies and so many of them had comedy troops and I was like oh so I should start a comedy troupe and I did right away but the first thing I told the troop was any one of you quits, we go on without you. This isn't about any one of us as an individual. Um, just know that. And uh -huh. <laughs> I, it's like that, that experience of the band being taken away from me because Scott had to go be a dad, which is noble. Yeah. Um, but you know, I wasn't gonna, gonna do that again. I wasn't gonna make that kind of shaky investment of my time and energy, I guess. Yeah. And you were, you were in, still in Sacramento at this time. Yeah. Okay. So what kind of comedy scene were you looking at or were you facing when you, you made that switch? So I started at a small club here called Laughs Unlimited that at the time was kind of our like B club. Like if the A-listers went to Punchline, the B-listers came to, to Laughs Unlimited. Okay. And um, a woman named Karen Anderson, who's a brilliant, I think she has a podcast with, with Doug Benson right now. Um, a brilliant writer. She's written for a whole bunch of the greats. She wrote for Ellen DeGeneres and she wrote with Wanda Sykes. Um, wow. She taught a comedy class. And so I went and took it and it kind of helped. It, I kind of think of it as like training wheels. It kind of gave me the confidence to get up and try stand up. I had already done a lot of public speaking and even something very similar to comedy when I was emceeing the animation festival. But to do it in a comedy club in that environment, the, the class helped. And uh, yeah, the scene was interesting. Sacramento at that time very much had a like in the shadow of San Francisco kind of attitude about mm. itself. So yeah. whereas now I think I got some of the best comedians performing in San Francisco are from Sacramento. I think we've really established our reputation as a solid comedy town, but I don't feel like that had happened yet at that point. Yeah. So it was weird. <laughs> so I, I was reading a, another article that, uh, and you, you talked about Johnny Taylor, who we, we absolutely love Johnny uh, here at Comedy okay. Wham. No, he's okay. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> we had him on the, on the online show. And then my, my uh, friend, Laura Smith, she interviewed him for, for this podcast. Okay. And so we're, we're, we're big fans of Johnny. And uh, this article that I was reading uh, mentioned how you did really great your first six times and, and like you you had kind of a little banter about how you you always do well your first few times and then your friends and family stop going to your shows and that's right. when you that's when you bomb <laughs> um, but it sounds like with your experience with public speaking that you didn't have that barrier to feeling confident on stage. So what, what got you through past the, the bombing stage? That I, 
I, I wasn't going to quit while I was bombing. If anything, I was at greater risk of quitting during those first six shows where I did well. Like mm. I might've gone, okay, cool. I did that. And I was good at it next, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and, and I was doing really weird stuff. I was very Andy Kaufman influenced a lot more than people would think given the comedian I later became. Um, you know, I was putting strainers on my head and performing my whole set as a fly or doing a bit where I wouldn't come out on stage. I made the MC bring the mic backstage to me because I had <laughs> stage fright. And, um, you know, that time I bombed was the first time I told the story. I told like this long, they gave me, it was my first professional booking too. Like for my seventh time on stage to be a paid booking oh is unheard gosh. of, but I had done so well those six times. So then they gave me five whole minutes and I did a story I had never told on stage before. And the story was five minutes long, which is extremely arrogant and, and naive <laughs> of me. And Karen Anderson, you know, my mentor at the time told me not to. And mm. I was like, I got this, you know? And afterwards she was like, Told you. you. (laughs) (laughs) She was super right. And that scared me off of storytelling for a while, you know. Can Um, I, can I, for, you know, I'm, I'm a super fan. I've, I've done comedy a a bit, but I I am curious to know why, why did she tell you or or what is the, um, what is the philosophy behind telling somebody don't do a five minute story this early on? It, you know, it was less that it was a five minute story than that it was untested it was don't you know do the stuff that got you this gig that's been working really well for you you're six times on stage do kind of a greatest hits of that don't do some untested thing you've never done okay but then also doing a story with your whole five minutes is kind of putting all your eggs in one basket um if that story bombs then you bombed your set yeah whereas if you're doing a bunch of short jokes in five minutes a few of them can bomb and you can recover, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've asked the audience to invest all of this time. And if you don't give them a payoff at the end. The, yeah. The interesting thing about a story is even if the story is made up of smaller jokes on the way, which it should be, mm-hmm. and those all do well, it still has to end strong. And that's true of any comedy set. You should have a strong closer, but it's even more true of one where you've invested everything in the closer. Yeah. If I do a normal set and then I, my closer doesn't do that great, I can sneak in a quick short closer that I have. Mm. And all comedians <laughs> do that. You see some comedians, they're on their third or fourth attempt to sneak in a closer and have it work. <laughs> so they can get off the stage. And you're over there lighting them like, get off. Ah. <laughs> um, but you can't really do that when you've told the five minutes of a story and then the ending kind of goes blah. And then you're like, oh, here's an unrelated thing. It's funny though. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> So yeah, it's a, it's a little bit trickier and a little bit scary. So did you, did you uh, follow the rules right after that? Or did you kind of do that subversive thing until you figured out, oh, but the long story is what I really want to do. Yeah. It scared me when I followed the rules a little more after that. um, And then slowly worked my way back up to telling stories, figured out the difference. Cause that story killed for me at parties. People would say, Oh, Hey, tell the story about when your brother made you sit in dog poop. Like it was a popular (laughs) story for me to tell. And then when I, years later, many years later, when I got around to recording my first album, I put that story as the closer and, and it's the story that the album's named after to the moon. Um, So that was kind of, again, where I said, I couldn't quit on a fail. I had to quit Mm. on a win. Well, I also couldn't even let that story sit there as a fail. I had to eventually score with that story or else ultimately it was a failure. Now it's a success that had a hard time getting there, you know? And that's kind of a weird obsession of mine. Sometimes I'll keep doing something I don't even like anymore for a really long time, just because like I got to win before I can quit. Yeah. you know and playing yeah. a game I don't even like playing so. uh, I'm curious did, did Karen uh, get to see your your uh, winning version oh I don't know she moved <laughs> back down to LA I should ask her because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. that's great uh, you know it's great if you personally win but it's great to have somebody who was who was there right when it didn't win who told you you gotta follow the rules but then yeah. she gets to see your progress and say oh my god you did it you you learned you 
you worked right. hard to to get to this point. So about how long did it take for you to to transition from the 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 spectacle Andy Kaufman-esque style of comedy to to the more storytelling and and I I'm curious specifically what did, did something singular uh, make that change happen or was it just a gradual you got your comfort level to migrate to the the more storytelling style it's interesting I'm, I'm telling you my seventh time on stage I tried a story so yeah. I think I was ready to transition that direction really early on yeah and then if anything it bombing made it take longer scared me away from it and so I kept getting kind of more and more experimental. I did a routine years later that I called sketch comedy troop in a box. Um, and I would literally start on stage with a box on stage that I was in, that I got in before the audience was seated. Uh-huh. And then I'd come out of the box and be like, all right, I got a show for you. You know, and it was, it was like trying to do sketch comedy as a single person. It was all like kind of conceptual and weird and, um, Meanwhile, my I'm, I'm writing a lot. I'm writing short stories, and my girlfriend, now my wife, but for 14 years, you know, my girlfriend um, was constantly telling me, "You're a storyteller," and and trying to ride that line of like respecting me doing what I want to do, but then also her feeling so strongly, like, "God, you're you're great at storytelling, and you have a passion for storytelling. You always." wanted to tell stories in different forms. I've wanted to be a graphic novelist and I've wanted to make movies and I want, you know, all things that center around storytelling. I would, I would go to parties and I would hold court telling uh. stories or you find that one other person that's a big storyteller and you swap stories. You get a little two man show going or a two person <laughs> show going. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of pushing from her as well. Uh, although I don't know, I don't know if that sped me up or slowed me down because yeah. I was so stubborn. <laughs> but pushing my made me go nope i'm not gonna do it <laughs> so about how many years into performing stand-up did you did it take before your first comedy album which uh two oh hmm i don't have the date for bad comedy for bad people that's the first right yeah i think it's okay. um 2009 okay and i was probably about 10 or 11 years in okay so, and is that representative of your storytelling? It ends with a 10 minute story. It's, okay. but it probably has a lot more sort of jokey jokes on it than my later stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it really, the, the purpose of it was to start getting me hours. You know, I, I wasn't being booked to do hours and I knew that I could. Mm-hmm. So even rehearsing to record that hour the longest set that I got leading up to it was 30 minutes. A friend of mine gave me 30 minutes in a nearby town, um, a really small like podunk town where a train went right behind the club. So <laughs> you'd have to stop in the middle of your set because the building was shaking. And, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I had to practice doing an hour in five, 15 and one 30 minute installments. Um, but then when it was done, then I could go to bookers like, David Tribble or Charter that did these one-nighters all over the place and say, I can do an hour. Here's a CD of me doing an hour. The fact that it was actually a released CD with a nice cover and a UBC code and everything uh, to me just made that more persuasive and mm-hmm. impressive. Um, but really I wasn't thinking as much about having merch to sell as I was about just bumping myself up a level in comedy. Because yeah. I wasn't doing the club route. I wasn't going to the punchline. I wasn't. Um, so the punchline is Sacramento's kind of gatekeeper where okay. you start getting work in a professional environment. And you go there every Sunday and you just hang out. And maybe after a year of that, they, they put you on and hopefully you do well, or you might have another year of waiting. It's kind of grueling. And I just decided not to do it. Um, in hindsight, probably not one of my best decisions, but it worked out okay for me. Yeah. But so recording my own CD and then being like, here, here's me doing an hour was, I guess, my alternative to that. So if you're, you were going to do the club route, what, what was your, what was your route? 
So I came from being in a band and this is somewhere where me and Johnny Taylor have a lot in common. I mean, we both have navigated the club route because we realized that that was part of the game. Mm -hmm. But early on, we both saw this other route as in my case, someone who'd been in bands and in his case, as someone who'd been a fan of like independent music for a long time of building your own audience. The clubs is about going and uh, working with the audience they have because usually opening for someone else here it's the the crowd they drew or it's mm -hmm. just the club that the crowd drew by giving away free tickets people wonder why comedy clubs give away so many free tickets like so you'll come and buy two drinks i mean yeah. that's that's know, the money maker that. yeah yeah <laughs> um so yeah I, I wanted to i started a sketch comedy troupe we performed in an art gallery i performed at bars i put on my own show at a local coffee shop I, you know that was going to be my route and when I built a big enough audience I figured I'd be undeniable to the clubs and kind of bypass some of that oops mm -hmm. and and that worked it just took a lot longer than I thought spending my Sunday nights at Punchline hanging out would have sped up my career a lot and honestly what are you doing during that time you're watching some of the best comedians in the world perform it's not a bad way to spend your time if you're trying to learn how to do comedy yeah. You know? So, um, yeah, when young comedians ask me for advice, I always go, go to Punchline every Sunday, <laughs> tell them <laughs> you're there and then wait your time. Um, you know, I, I, I could have got there quicker that way. Yeah. But when I did finally get on stage at Punchline, it's because I had independently booked shows, either that I was booking or that friends were booking. And so I was getting on their stage that way anyway, and the booker already knew me. And then I was able to go to her and say, hey, can I get up on a Sunday? And she was like, yeah, why haven't you been coming? And I was like, you know, uh, I have off and on for 10 years. I told her I was shy, which is true. Like off stage, I can be really shy. So I was like, I'm shy when there's not lights on me and a microphone in my hand. And she's like, okay, I relate to that. I'm very shy as well. She's like, all right, we'll try you out. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. Subverting the system. Right. But oftentimes subverting the system is just taking a much, much longer circuitous path instead yeah. of like a, a, the steep climb that's in front of you. <laughs> that's right. Painting those nudes was a lot longer than just, you know, ripping the page out of the Playboy. <laughs> right. Uh, so, well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because a few episodes back, uh, so Cap City is is the comparable. You've probably heard of Cap oh, City yeah. in Austin. That's the comparable venue to to the Punchline, and they should was, probably book me, don't you think? Well, when they they you know they shut down, but then right. they are coming back. But they're coming back under the helium umbrella. So oh oh, I didn't realize that. I thought they had just shut down temporarily. Okay, no, but, they they yeah they they're they not shut. Capital City anymore. Now they're. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to rename everybody for, for now. They're still, you know, everybody's still referring to them as, as Cap City. Okay. Um, but the, the conversation that I was having with this person who, who opened their own room to have, you know, open mics every single night. And they, they had a real issue with the fact that everybody, the only way that you could work Cap is if you showed up every Sunday night at their open mic and you just right. sat in the back of the room and it's like, well, how is that making a comic better? You know, let's give them stage time. Let's have an open mic every night of the week, not just once a week. And so it was very, uh, you know, it was, it was an eye opening perspective. You know, I acknowledge that that was the system that you, you have to show up to cap every Sunday night. And even if you're not, if you didn't make right. the list, you gotta be in the back of the room. <laughs> See, even, even as I tried to find my way around that system, I don't really object to it because yeah. it, one, it makes you stronger by you hang out, you watch other really good comedians. And I think that that's sure. part of our craft as well. Um, two, it's one night of the week. You can still go hit an open mic after and before it. Mm -hmm. We often did. Yeah. You know, cause we would drive an hour and a half into the city to go to punchline. Um, so while we're there, there were late night open mics we could hit, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, and then there's also Monday through Saturday, <laughs> you know, right. where we were out doing stand-up. It's not like it's necessarily the job of every club to build up the people that are brand new. Maybe when you're built up to a certain level, then it's the job of the club to help you with your development from there. Yeah. But I don't think it's realistic for the, the one big club in town 
to try to in that way help develop every person that just decides they want to try stand-up comedy and and let's face it half of whom aren't going to keep with it yeah. you know so yeah. um yeah i've seen a, a few people that have complained about that system and I don't really object to it because I'm not sure I see how else the club could do it, even as I chose not to participate in it. And I also respect anyone choosing not to participate in it. Yeah. You know, yeah. or trying to find another way in. Right. Right. That's, I mean, there is no one size fits all instruction manual for a comedy career. Right. So, so did you find that having that album, that hour under your belt started finally shake some things loose and things started moving yeah. at a better pace for you? Yeah, I started getting booked for hours, Yeah, which I wanted, or half hours or 45 minute sets. You know, I started getting those longer sets that I wanted. Yeah. And so that was cool. But then the surprise was that I also sold a lot of albums. And I mean, a lot by my standards. Uh -huh. I didn't get a gold record or anything. I probably got a cardboard record. <laughs> um, but then I, I started, people liked it. And people liked having, you know, a recording of me. And so that's why I recorded another one pretty quickly after that, which was uh, Cats Made of Rabbits. And also to send it to labels. Uh, when I first made it, my goal wasn't necessarily to send it to labels, but then I did because I had it. And then some of the labels were like, hey, we like this. We're not necessarily ready to release it, but uh -huh. keep in touch. Yeah. And once they said keep in touch, I was like, well, then I better make something new. So I have a reason to keep in touch, you know yeah so, so i right uh, away recorded cats made of rabbits like within i think a year year and a half yeah i mean we're at 2021 your first album was in 2009 you have eight records under your belt that's an impressive track record i initially wanted to do one a year Whew. i'm a big woody allen fan as an artist not as a person okay um, <laughs> <laughs> and and woody allen made a movie a year the beatles made uh -huh. two albums a year i was like yeah an album a year sounds reasonable uh -huh. <laughs> uh, and then I had labels that were like no well, we're not doing an album with you every year <laughs> uh what is your current label is it the 800 pound yeah I'm with 800 okay. pound gorilla records and they're fantastic I had a lot of problems with my first label that I signed with and I uh -huh. you know I mean I'm still in hindsight glad that I did because I probably wouldn't be with 800 pound gorilla if I hadn't passed through that yeah. other label that shall remain nameless first <laughs> But uh, 800 Pound Gorilla, one, they let me release what I want as often as I want. But two, they know how to sell a record. Yeah. You know, and they'll yeah. say things to me like, hey, if you did a clean album, we have a market for it. Uh, but if you don't want to do a clean album, go do a dirty album. We'll release it. We'll do the best we can with it. Huh. You know, so I did KLJ Greatest Bits was my first thing with them. And it was clean. And people are like, you know, oh, they pressured you to do a clean album. And I was like, no, they asked me if I wanted to like, hit a market that I wasn't hitting. And I was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> um, so they've, they've been really cool that way and really supportive. They've allowed me to have what cover art I want, which was a big fight with the other label. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they just kind of treated me like an artist. So. Yeah. You, you don't strike me as a uh, not clean comic. So I, I'm just curious how much of a challenge it was for you to do an all clean album. I joke about it as if it was a challenge, but it wasn't. Like you said, I mean, I'm not particularly dirty. Yeah. Um, so it was just holding out the swears and the, and the swears can for a comic. Here's the thing. A lot of comics say the swear is like a sign of nervousness. Um, and, and, you know, if you're dropping the F word constantly, it probably is. It probably yeah. is a sign of nervousness. But the fact is, there are jokes that are funnier if you say the curse word than if you say the same joke without a curse word. Yeah, yeah. But there are a couple of places where, okay, so in uh, Not For Rehire, I described being at the golf course and getting mad at the golfers who are purposely hitting balls into the, the vehicle I'm driving. Uh -huh. And I curse them out. And so when I originally told the joke, I would say the curse words that I said to the golfers when I cursed them out. And then I would also flip them off and I would show people my finger. Well, when I went to do a clean version of that, I said, uh, so I yelled every curse word I knew with them, which at 15 was most of them because we uh -huh. had cable. <laughs> yeah. 
And I feel like that ended up being a new joke that was a better joke than me just yelling a bunch of curse words, yeah. you know? And then for flipping them off, I said, and, and, and as I was yelling, I pointed at, you know, but not, not like with the traditional pointing finger <laughs> and more <laughs> like up than at them directly. <laughs> uh, and again, it, it ended up forcing me to, to write something that I thought ended up being better. So then even when I was doing a room where I could be as filthy as I wanted, I ended up doing that joke the clean way because the clean way on that joke worked better. Uh-huh. But then there's other jokes that I'm like, no, I'm just not going to do that one clean. That joke's better the way it is. Not even because it has, some jokes are just have such a dirty subject matter. There's just no way to clean them up and it's pointless to try. But then yeah. there's jokes where just that F-bomb just in the right place is just, Mwah, you know, it's the <laughs> spice you need. Uh, and there's no point in trying to clean it up. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I- I, I did watch the Not For Rehire uh, and I was struck by some art, the artistic elements to to that special. The the opening was really creative and, cool. and well done. And I love the, the notion of, of your stage uh, back, background, the, the boxes with your initials on it. Yeah. I just thought those are some like really nice little artistic touches. Has, is, are those uh, little but um unstated and I, i'll admit I, I only got through about half an hour of the special so far so maybe it, it's something that you do address uh after but it, are these things that you ever address or is it just it is part of what you want to bring to an audience is these little artistic touches so that's about collaboration mm-hmm. um and no i never address the boxes okay uh and we didn't even know what the intro was going to be when we shot the special. Huh. So the intro is a, a brilliant guy named Jason Broussard who directed the special. Okay. And he knows I'm a big that 70s show fan. Again, as comedy, not, <laughs> yes. not the people involved. One of them, a couple of them turned out to be quite problematic. Yeah. Um, but uh, he came to me and was like, what if we had you at different ages, dressed for different jobs, talking in the basement, uh-huh. you know, around the table, like you're having a smoke session. Like that would be amazing. And so then we actually put a call out for a basement to use. And and a friend answered the call, was like, I have a perfect that 70s show basement. <laughs> <laughs> so we did it on location in a friend's cool. basement. There's a bird, a big parrot sitting on my shoulder. It's so weird I to me how much people that. don't notice it. Yeah. I'm in the Petco uniform. One of the me's sitting around the okay. table is in a Petco uniform with this big old live parrot on my shoulder. I can't believe I missed that. I can't yeah. believe I missed that. Somehow people it. don't notice it, yeah. I think, because everything's moving very fast. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. the night before we shot, the director was at Target and he saw one of those bird guys, you know, the guys that always have their bird with them. <laughs> And he went up and he said, hey, I have a really weird favor to ask you. And that guy was like, oh, that would be great. And he shows oh up gosh. the day of our shoot. He didn't charge us anything. He was just happy to have his bird be a star. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, you know, and the bird scared me in the same way that I described being scared of those big birds in the special. I mean, the thing's got a beak. It could have taken my ear right off yeah. with very little thought. Oh, my God. <laughs> And then you have the audacity to not even notice. I know. I feel terrible because <laughs> I um, noticed like dumb little things. Like I was watching a TV show the other day and uh, I was the only one that noticed that they were the, it's a, it was a sitcom and I was the only one, there was three of us watching and nobody noticed that throughout the episode, they were doing a countdown and you could see them going from 40, 39, and they were okay. inserting numbers in various scenes uh, as oh, a wow. countdown. And I'm like, that was really cool. But of course, I'm a numbers and math person. So of course, I What's was gonna... sitcom. Now I'm intrigued. <laughs> it was How I Met Your Mother. Okay. That's and... some sharp writing. That's actually a really yeah, clever show. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I uh, never wanted to watch the show, but I was convinced to give it a try. And it took about a season. And now I just wow they really do some really cool cool things with the writing yeah, yeah. so anyway so i will re-watch it and i will be play, pay closer attention Watch to that bird <laughs> yeah but yeah the so the so the boxes on stage was another jason that was jason adair okay and he did my last three sets 
And the first set was, you would have thought we were putting on a play. And that was for Atheist Christmas. It sat like a living room at Christmas time. You even had some snow falling, but uh, the the window to the outside, you see snow Uh falling at the beginning. (laughs) We had a fireplace and a Christmas tree. I wanted it very cozy. When I first came in, I changed out of my shoes and into my slippers and um, take my jacket off, you know. Mr. Uh, Rogers. Yeah. And then the next set was... um, the green stripes and pictures of terrible people throughout history. And he painted them in this garish style and had them laughing. Um, And then, and then for the third set, he came to me with the boxes and that was a hard sell to the producer and the director. They didn't like his mock-ups of it. Um, But I'm a big Andy Warhol fan. And I remember Andy Warhol with the Brillo boxes and I, I knew we could make it look good. I knew Jason wouldn't quit until it looked good. And so I really pushed for it and yeah. I love, love, love how it came. Yeah. Out. Cause it's, it, it allows you to do like this cohesive marketing throughout. Like it's just, uh, yeah, I, I think it was a very cool idea. I'm glad people pushed for it. It's kind of satirizing branding, but it's branding. It's exactly, exactly. <laughs> Subversive. <laughs> I, until this interview, I had no idea I was so subversive. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm sorry. I'm so- <laughs> no, I like it. That's great. Um, it's my new brand. It's going to be the, the name of my next album, Keith L. Jensen, Subversive. <laughs> uh, you, you then decided that you were going to tackle writing a book, which as a storyteller and poet, you know, seemed like a very natural step but your your book title is just so great uh punching nazis and other good ideas i think i yeah you got it uh and i i was reading i was reading the amazon sample yeah yeah (laughs) and uh i i like how uh you, you 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 opened up with the whole notion of the trigger warning Right. And uh, the zinger at the end about that, and and uh, you, one of your trigger warnings was that you were going to be naming the forty fifth president president often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's on Kindle, so I'm going to be actually adding it to my reading list so I can read it because I, I liked the writing style, which of course is you know if you're a, a storyteller, you're going to have a, a, a good writing style. Um, what what pushed you into writing a book? That's the weirdest thing. So I, <laughs> I, I wrote a collection of short stories that I self-released, uh, what I think I call the Oh Holy Day. Um, and a lot of them centered around holidays. Uh, I wrote Not for Rehire originally as a book huh. and got rejections from a couple of very esteemed publishers. Uh, it's so different than comedy where you can just keep going after those laughs and that reward until you get it mm-hmm. to spend months of my life writing something and then not get any feedback except a rejection letter. Wow. That hurts. Yeah. That's so hard to take. And so I, I thought I wasn't going to make it as a writer just because the process was too painful. I would keep writing, but I wasn't you know going to try to publish a book again. And then Richard Spencer got punched in the face on inauguration day and it mm-hmm. went viral and all these debates started about whether or not we should punch Nazis. And I was very outspoken in favor of punching Nazis. Um, I'm also in favor of trigger warnings. Whenever as a white dude, people are like, Oh, he wrote about trigger warnings. I'm like in favor of them. Oh. Cause I, <laughs> I feel like yeah. everyone, especially <laughs> comedians are all making fun of them. And I'm like, no, yeah. I, what's, it's a good idea. I like when NPR says, Hey, the next story is really graphic. So I can decide what my 10 year old in the back, if I'm going to mm-hmm. leave it or 11 year old now, leave it on or not, you know? Um, I don't think you can hear there she her. Is. Yep. You were 10 <laughs> at the time that I was thinking of. <laughs> she is 11. Um, and, and also clearly listening to me, which is yeah. good to know. <laughs> she could have kept that to herself and maybe I would have said things that later I'd regret. Um, so my friend, Carrie Poppy, who does the podcast, Oh No, Ross and Carrie, which is a great like uh, kind of like m- myth busters of woo, you know, okay. like 
they they uh, are like a skeptics podcast. Um, she got approached to write a book by Skyhorse. And she wasn't in a position where she wanted to do that. But she says to them, you should have Keith L. Jensen write a book. And it's so weird to me that this is how I got a book deal. Wow. They said, what would he write about? And she said, punching Nazis. <laughs> and they said, oh, that's hot right now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I get this letter saying, we hear you have a manuscript called Punching Nazis. And I wrote back and I was like, one, no. <laughs> but here, here's something I did wrote, write. And I actually sent them uh, Not For Rehire. And they wrote back and they said, we like your writing style. This is very funny. We want the Nazi punching book. <laughs> and, oh, and then they offered me a like a really attractive advance for it. And I went, oh, I could write a Nazi punching book. Yeah. So I suggested the title Punching Nazis and Other Good Ideas. One, because I think it's funny. And two, because the and other good ideas means I could be a little more broad. Yeah. And so the yeah. book ends up being about um, I, everything from my like, you know, social justice warrior politics <laughs> to um, stories about the punk rock scene in the late 80s and early 90s, which was very plagued with white supremacists and Nazi skinheads in Sacramento yeah. and even in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and, and a few interviews. A few, I interviewed uh, the bass player for the band Simmerip, a ska band that did the song um, Skinhead Moonstomp, mm. and interviewed him about how cool skinheads were. These awesome non-racist skinheads in the early scene i the whole skinhead thing got co-opted uh, um interviewed comedian kate gary one of my favorite comedians about her status as the trump slayer she <laughs> she really the minute trump got elected she got branded huh. and uh yeah when um i'm sorry my mind is blinking right now the the kathy kathy griffith oh yeah yeah kathy yeah holding holding trump's yeah. head i was like Pfft. She's got nothing on Kate. <laughs> For one, Kate would never have apologized. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it was cool. It was, it was a really fun experience. It was also a terrifying experience because they'd given me that advance and I didn't really have faith in myself that I could write the book. And so I just, or, or that anyone would get my style. I'm so influenced by graphic novels and by zines. You know, Jeffrey Comet Bus is one of my favorite writers. So it was going to be short and all over the place. And some of the stories weren't going to have real clear plot lines. They were just going to be little slices of life mm -hmm. that seemed to be acceptable in graphic novels. But I was like, will they get that in this other format? Um, and the, the editor, as soon as she read it, she asked me if I knew Aaron Comet Bus. And I was like, I'm a huge fan. And she's like, she's like, not in a way that's derivative, but uh -huh. I can see that this is kind of in the same wheelhouse. And I was like, yes she gets wow. me knows what i'm because that's the biggest part it's like not only is it good but will they get what you're doing yeah. you know um sometimes if someone doesn't enjoy something it's often that they just don't get where you're coming from yeah and it, so yeah and if you're if you're uh putting out volumes of content to people whether it's you know having a good rapport with the record label who you know can support you in right. in different ways to knowing that there are small publishing houses and it's not just simon and schuster and the big publishing houses who just have to be machines right uh, knowing that you found a smaller publishing house that truly gets you and in your influences that's that's pretty but, cool but that's the problem i didn't do that Skyhorse. Ah. Skyhorse is a very big publisher. Oh, okay. And, and she got me. Ah. And then before the book even came out, she got let go. <gasps> the company reduced their staff by 25% because book sales were plummeting. <sighs> and I feel like they would have dropped my book, but it had already printed. So they oh. were like, all right, it's out. And so I didn't have a big budget behind it or anything. And they're surprised that three years later, I'm still ordering boxes of it and selling it. Yeah. And I'm having to explain to them part of my initial pitch when they approached me, I was like, well, this should be cool. Cause I'm a comedian. I'm like always on a book tour, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, most authors do a book tour the first six months and then yep. they stop personally selling a lot of the books until they do their next book. Whereas I'm like, no, I'm going to keep selling this book. Keep, yeah. keep those boxes ready. Um, <laughs> but my new book, what I was arrested for will be published with a small publishing house called Clash Books. 
They're okay. awesome. They just published In Defense of Ska, which is doing really, really well. Um, yeah, and I'm trying to, and, and a lot of other great stuff. I'm yeah. super excited to be working with them. Oh, so. well, okay. So I'm happy you, you, almost, you pulled the rug out from under me about the whole big publishing house, small publishing house. I'm glad that you found a-, a I landed a, at a good. small publishing house, yeah. which let's face it is where I belong. But for the yeah. initial book, uh, because punching Nazis was a hot topic for a minute, I tricked yeah. the big publishing house into <laughs> taking a chance on me. Their mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and three years later, you're still selling- selling it strong yeah my first week back in a club i was featuring for chris porter just last week uh-huh. and sold out a whole box of books and oh it felt gosh. so good yeah so yeah, yeah. greg proofs advised me to write a book he was oh. like, yeah people aren't really buying cds and dvds and you seem like a guy who could write a book <laughs> so every time i empty another box i'm like thank you greg thank you saint <laughs> greg <laughs> nice uh so you're you're hitting the stages uh once more which must feel really good to be able to do that the first two or three times back on stage was awful Hmm. the the lower capacity people sitting far apart from each other it's hard to get that laugh contagion going uh i was really kind of despondent about it and then i had this week with chris porter and it was awesome yeah and it was still only at 60 percent capacity and this but we just killed um yeah chelsea bierce opened and all three of us murdered had really really good sets night after night show after show we did a total of six shows they added an early show on saturday because it was selling so well so i i have to say uh uh to 2020 you you were on our online show a couple of times and each time your daughter uh, either just took over. I think there was, I think the first time you had to address something off stage and she came and took over, maybe you were running behind and she just started it off. And uh, I, then I think the second time you came on, she had a a lesser role and I was kind of thinking, well, I wonder if Max is going to show up. But so, of course, so now you've heard her during this interview too. Yes, yes. And I didn't realize in doing my research she has a Twitter account with some of the you know the 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 crazy things that that she she says. Right. Um, I'm wondering is there a little part of you that because you've obviously been in isolation with her and I know uh, I have I have a 14 year old and he's not necessarily the social butterfly and I'm not. You know, I'm not looking at a situation where I could be doing a tour every right. weekend, but are, is there a little part of you that thinks, oh man, I've really enjoyed getting to, to be with my, my, my daughter, like nonstop for the last year and a half. And if right. I go on the road, I'm going to miss out on, on cool moments like that. How do you, you know, as a parent, as a dad, how do you, how are you feeling with that? I, I think I spend more time hanging out with her than a lot of dads do with their kids normally. Um, And I definitely changed the way I toured when I became a dad, because it used to be if I could get a gig in New York that paid for my ticket there and back, then I would extend, I would go for two weeks. I would perform the gig and then I would book a bunch of gigs around it that weren't going to pay for my ticket because I'm like, when am I going to get a chance to be back and hit all these clubs? Sure. And I would stay out as long as I could. You know, um, if I was going to go up to Seattle, I was going to hit every club on the way up and every club I could on the way doing a different route back down again, you mm-hmm. know? And now I will literally fly up to Seattle, perform my two nights and fly home. You know, I, I've flown to New York and done three nights and came back. Uh, be, and, and these atheist events will fly me out and I'll literally fly home the next day, which okay. the atheist shows were said, that was one of the first things where I was getting flown around the country. Um, believe it or not, in, in more red states, they actually have these atheist conventions and stuff because being an atheist is more of a big deal and fun. Huh. You know, <laughs> I think in Austin and, and in Sacramento, it's like, oh, you're an atheist. You're on. <laughs> you <know? laughs> 
that makes so I, was, sense. I was getting flown all over the country for that and I would take advantage of it when else am I going to get a chance to do some gigs in Lawrence Kansas you know yeah. uh, so that was cool but now with a kid I'm like no I want to get home I want to get home uh-huh. and hang out with my kids so it's definitely different but I dream of the day that we can climb into the motor home and go on tour and her and mom can hang out while I go do gigs and then I, I come back to them and sit around a campfire for a little bit before going to sleep yeah <laughs> that's that's like that'll be the best when we yeah. can tour that way uh, but that's still a little ways off yeah yeah I but it. I have to give her a shout out I'm doing a bit on stage right now about Shakespeare saying all the world's a stage uh-huh. and uh, how that I keep thinking that during this pandemic where I'm performing from my living room and I talk about I don't think Shakespeare ever had to perform from his kitchen yeah you know? <laughs> And my daughter came up with Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo, Romeo, Romeo. I think you're muted. I think. And I killed with that all weekend her, you know, and I'm so proud of her. Every time I tell Uh a joke, I'm like, yeah, my writer gave me that one. (laughs) My new 11 year old writer. Oh, that's so nice. (laughs) So yeah, it's cool being able to to do jokes with her instead of just, you know, about her. Yeah. And those little glimpses and even just the fact that she's listening to what you're saying now, I right. mean, she may have been, she may have moved on and thought ah, I'm bored, uh, but no, just I don't fa- hear Bluey playing in the background. So I'm pretty sure she's still, this is her entertainment for the hour. Yeah. The, the, the impression <laughs> that I got from, you know, her, her little mini appearances last year on, on our show and the fact that she's listening to you. I mean, she's obviously, she loves dad. She's very yeah. proud of dad, which is yeah. a cool feeling. <laughs> yeah yeah we do all right we're peas in a pod which yeah. is also why we can really butt heads too but <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um okay well i we're we're gonna start winding down is there something that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure people know about keith lowell jensen uh well i mentioned that i have another book coming out yeah um so that's really exciting uh and that should start taking pre-orders uh, within a couple of months, I think it's all edited. They're working on the cover art, um, and it'll definitely be out by I think they said October or November. Okay, um, and that's what I was arrested for. Yeah, <laughs> and it's and it's all stories of me going to jail or otherwise having interactions with the cops. Uh huh. Um, and it's it's more the like punching Nazis was a great experience, but it wasn't the book I wanted to write. It was the book they wanted me to write. Yeah. And now yeah. this one, it, it's almost completely just stories. So it's not interviews and essays. So my, I think there's like one, like the, the closing. Um, but mostly it's me telling stories, which is what I do. And so uh, I think it's a really fun book. Uh, I think people will enjoy it. And then other than that, um, yeah, Not For Rehire is still on Amazon. And uh, if people can review it, that sure means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, go support live comedy, especially... Uh, people that, well I won't say especially your locals and people on the road <laughs> we all need your support yeah hopefully yeah. you get to see us in one place hanging out together <laughs> yeah so one of the things that I'm doing with this uh, vacation series is I am asking my guests to uh, talk about or or tell you know got got listeners from everywhere let's presume most of them are in Austin Tell us why we should be paying attention to the Sacramento comedy scene and who are some names that we should be paying attention to? Oh, well, you had already mentioned Johnny Taylor. He's a Sacramentan who's all over the map right now, yeah. outperforming already. Man, he really hit the ground oh, running. He's, the he was not waiting. Yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm treading slowly, tiptoeing into the water. Johnny's already swimming yeah. uh, in the ocean. Um, <laughs> And Guy O'Beelum is a much beloved local comedian um, who works with Doug Benson a lot. Um, yeah, t- tours with a lot of people, plays every weed festival and weed event in the country. Um, <laughs> Becky Lynn is a really very funny local who I love a lot um, and I think is worth booking. Um, Parker Newman is a, a young man who just cracks me up. Chaz Hawkins um mikey winfield is from sacramento oh we know mike know him but they don't know that he's from here he is he is and he he stays here even as he's getting work in la he might even have an apartment in la as far as i know um but he still has an apartment here he's still a a hometown guy Kyrie shabazz is blowing up right now 
he's a Sacramento guy who's super hilarious. Uh, I'll give you one last one. J.R. de Guzman. Okay. Yeah. And I'm writing phonetically, but uh, after the fact, I'll say, okay, how do you spell these names? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can email you the list. Yeah. I, wish, I wish I'd put more women on the list, but my mind is blanking right now. I'll have to work on that. But uh, yeah. yeah, we got Becky Lynn in there. She's super funny. Whatever woman is screaming right now hearing this because <laughs> I should have named them and didn't, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and give us a, a high level reason why we should all be paying attention to the Sacramento scene. I feel like we have a, a certain voice that's developed in Sacramento where, and this isn't true of, of everyone in Sacramento or even everyone on my list, but the Sacramento voice, we're not yelling at you and telegraphing the jokes in as much. I feel like there's kind of a, a mellow or laid back style happening in Sacramento. Um, that I really like. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and like I said, we lived in the shadow of San Francisco for a long time. They called us Hackramento. Uh, oh. <laughs> and now, even within the San Francisco scene, when you look at the, the people that are performing, Sacramento comedians are dominating. Like, I don't know what magic came together here, but we gave the world death grips and the deftones and cake and a whole bunch of really good comics. <laughs> so, I mean, even as I was reading that list to you, a few of those names are becoming national names, but, but are still based out of here. And that's really cool. Yeah. Awesome. It's neat when someone isn't from Sacramento, but they made it in LA or they made it in New York. It's really neat when they're making it and they're still in Sacramento. Yeah. You know, that's, I feel like that's a kind of cool accomplishment. Yep. Agreed. We same, same here. I think it's ah, good to have our hometown heroes stay home. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Ian Mackay of minor threat. And I love that his label will only sign local DC artists. Huh. He's like, start a label in your town. Yeah. And your town's always going to suck if everyone good leaves. You know? <laughs> so, That's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. All right. Well, before I do my official closing, I have one more question for you, Keith. Are you ready? I'm going to try and make this. This will be a good closer. Okay. I got to nail it. There's a lot okay. of pressure. All right. All right. One word to describe your future. Oh, damn you. <laughs> Um, terrifying, <laughs> which I, I, that's my word to describe everyone's future right now. Oh my God. Uh, the precipice the, we find ourselves on. <laughs> but in the face of some, uh, fails and challenges, you, you always work to, to convert that to a win. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to do anything about climate change to make it a win. <laughs> uh, you're doing your part. We're in the I, I watched... of a hell of a heat wave here in Sacramento, and oh, it's ugly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's uh, an April for us here in Central Texas. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's tough, but uh, I do see you doing your part. I, I follow you uh, on Instagram and, and Facebook, and you're you know you're a vegan and you uh, you you farm so i, I see the, the 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 fruits right now you're in a fig phase so yes. it's very much fruits of your labor <laughs> yeah. i'm gonna go harvest some loquats today <laughs> very cool all right well that is a wrap on oh by the way oh well we'll promote this uh, in this next little little part um that podcast uh, that is a wrap on comedy wham presents keith lowell jensen tell us where we can find you on social media and let us know about uh your upcoming shows projects and please say the name of your podcast keith <laughs> well i'm i'm at keith lowell on twitter instagram youtube just about everywhere and then facebook of course i'm just keith lowell jensen i have a fan page and a regular page my podcast is keith lowell jensen presents the keith lowell jensen show with keith lowell jensen and that's the shorter version. It was going to be Keith Lowell Jensen presents the Keith Lowell Jensen show with Keith Lowell Jensen for all your Keith Lowell Jensen needs. So yeah, we, we cut it down a little bit. So <laughs> thank goodness on a letterhead. Um, and I'm super proud of the podcast. And we actually have a special Father's Day episode coming out tonight at midnight. Uh, 
I'm where I interview my dad and he's got oh. some good stories and it's fun. So oh. maybe next father's day, I'll let Max interview me. We'll see what happens. Um, so yeah, but we, I, and I, I really wanted to not just limit that to uh, another comedian interviewing his comedian friends. So mm -hmm. I have some of my favorite, like Anton Barbeau is a great singer songwriter that I like. I've had Wendy and Richard Penny who created the comic book elf quest um, Keith Knight, who uh, hit the TV show woke is based on Keith's comics and he's oh. a consultant and writer on the show. Um, so yeah, we've had really good guests, a lot of comic book folks, a lot of video game folks and uh, some comedians. Very cool. Yeah, not, na not narrow casted like Comedy Wham, where we just talk to comics. <laughs> so, no, no offense at all. <laughs> yeah, I no, I know, I know. <laughs> I just, like my life is centered around comedy and I was yeah. like, I want to go talk to people in some of these other disciplines that I admire so much and secretly yeah. wish that I could also work in. <laughs> yeah, very cool. All right, well, we hope you've enjoyed learning about how Keith Lowell Jensen got to be the comedic genius that you heard today, just as uh -huh. much as I had. <laughs> This has been Comedy Wham presents Keith Lowell Jensen. I'm Valerie and that's been funny. Thank you, Keith. Thank you. <laughs>